Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2014 Fall Retreat. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Michael A. McFall, the Peter and Helen Bing Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the former United States Ambassador to the Russian Federation. The title of his talk is Our New Confrontation with Russia, Causes and Consequences, and it was recorded on October 21st, 2014. Uh, it is good to be home. If you ever uh, have the opportunity or experience to be ambassador anywhere, you should take it. It's a fantastic job. Uh, but you should also remember that you live in paradise if you live around here. And sometimes going away helps you to uh, remember that. So you've had an incredibly rich three days. And John punished me by making me the last speaker after three days right before lunch. So I'm going to try to be short, provocative, um, short and provocative. I'll just leave it at that. And what I want to do is I want to tell you that we are at the worst moment in U.S.-Russian relations that we've had probably in 30, probably even 40 years. Maybe even have to go back to the 60s to remember a time when the relationship was so confrontational. Let me just remind you of a few things that are happening. Uh, you, you know this, and then I'm going to explain it, but just to remind you of some of the things uh, that are happening that have not happened for a long, long time. Russia is intervening in Eastern Europe. Russia is annexing territory of a neighbor. Russia is portraying you, our country, as the greatest threat to international stability. In fact, just on Sunday night, they ran a piece on their major television show that did a comparison of the ideological similarities between the President of the United States and the leader of the Islamic State. Putin is framing things in zero-sum terms and in an ideological way. It's not just about our interests over this struggle or that struggle. He is saying that Russia is fighting a global war against American imperialism, and a global struggle against Western values. That's the way it's framed. Uh, I see some of you, I, Paul, I saw Paul Gregory here. So you watch some TV, Paul, you know, most of, most of you don't. But if you watch Russian TV, that's the message you're going to see on Russian television today. And in our response to that, we've done some pretty uh, unprecedented things too. By we, I mean the United States, uh, the NATO alliance, and the Western world. Never in the entire history of the Cold War was the chief of staff of the Kremlin on a sanctions list. He is today. Never, even during the, what I, I, I think the most robust economic response to Soviet aggression was right after uh, the crackdown against solidarity in Poland uh, in 1981 when Ronald Reagan was president. And if you compare that response, the economic response then, to what the Western world has done today, I would argue it's been more comprehensive. More Russian companies are on a sanctions list, more individuals are on a sanctions list today than even back in 1982. NATO, after doing a lot of different things over the last several years, is now focused again on its primary objective, protecting Europe from Russia. And Russia is being kicked out of a lot of inst international institutions that leaders before uh, the present leadership, including back to Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev, had worked to include Russia in. Now they're being kicked out. 
And I want to emphasize, I don't think this is just Russia against the United States or Russia against Europe. I really think there's a new uh, uh, concern in the world that Russia is violating the, the, some of the basic tenets of the international system that were put in place uh, at the end of World War II. And so when President Obama uh, gave his last speech at the United Nations, he said there are three central threats in the world, Ebola, ISIS, and Russia. That really pissed the Russians off, by the way, to be on that list. Uh, but I think it was right. So what happened? How did we get to this place? Remember, it was just two or three decades ago when Ronald Reagan and President Gorbachev, General Secretary Gorbachev, were working together to end the Cold War. And they did, in my opinion. And that period lasted up until this time. Uh, it had its ups and downs, it had its hiccups, but never have we been in this kind of moment of confrontation for the last 30 years. So I want to explain what happened. I want, to, I want you to walk out today, and if you can't remember anything, I want you to know the explanation, my explanation. You don't have to agree with it, of course. Uh, but I want you to remember my explanation for what happened. Uh, I'm going to go through three big explanations. One to do with the balance of power in the international system, two to do with US foreign policy, and three to deal with Russian domestic politics. But as I learned from my Pentagon friends when I served in the government, I want to give you my bluff right now in case you fall asleep or get too hungry and have to leave in 10 minutes. Does anybody know what a bluff is? Bluff is bottom line up front, B-L-U-F. My bottom line up front is this is not about Russia uh, forever being destined to be an imperial power. It is most certainly not about our foreign policy. This is primarily about Putin and his domestic struggle, his particular ideological orientation for dealing with domestic politics that has caused him to do what he's done here. So the punchline of my story is this is mostly about Putin, although these other factors are involved as well. And for the social scientists in the room, or those that want to think in social science terms, I'm a recovering bureaucrat, aspiring professor, uh, again, if you, there are structural theories which kind of say, you know, history is determined by things like culture, economic growth, the balance of power in the international system, uh, these kind of long-term structural variables. And we as individuals, we just kind of are the expression of these structural things. On the other side, there are agency theories, which is to say that, that individuals actually matter, uh, individual personalities matter, leaders matter. On that, that uh, spectrum, I am heavily on this agency side, just so you understand where I'm going with my argument. And by the way, I think we do a, a horrible job of studying and accounting for this uh, in, in political science, but I'll say more about that if you're interested later. All right, three big explanations. Let's start with the balance of power. Remember, Russia became weak. The Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. And if we were meeting, in fact, I, I was here uh, from time to time talking about Russia in the 90s, we would have been talking about how weak Russia was and how that was a threat to our international security. And that would have been right, by the way. I, I agreed with that analysis back then. But over the course of the last 25 years, Russia's become a lot stronger, both in military terms 
and in economic terms. And so the balance of power in the international system has shifted. Russia is today a much bigger, more powerful country, most certainly in the region of the former Soviet Union, but I think on most measures you would say they've risen in terms of their status vis-a-vis -vis other great powers in the international system. And so one theory of, 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 of the history of the world says that when powers rise, uh, they act more belligerently. They annex territory. And by the way, over the last several thousand years of history, there's a lot of empirical data to support that hypothesis. Uh, if you just think about the rise and fall of countries over thousands of years, or over the last three hundreds of years, there's something plausible to this, right? That, that as countries get bigger, they become threatening to their, uh, they, they have the capability, the capacity to uh, threaten their neighbors and sometimes, in fact, oftentimes, if you look over the sweep of history, annex territory of their neighbors. And therefore, from this theoretical perspective, Russia's just have, have, you know, behaving like a great power. Uh, good or bad, let's leave that uh, aside, just from an analytic perspective, this is how great powers behave. I think that theory's wrong for two reasons. Um, let, me, let me back up a bit. It's a necessary part of my explanation, which is to say that if Russia had no power, we wouldn't have to think about it, right? If Russia uh, was, still had the same military capabilities that they had in 1992 or 1993, we might have to think less about how they threaten countries like Ukraine, Georgia, uh, and countries in the NATO alliance. But I don't think it's a sufficient explanation for a couple of reasons. One, I can remember uh, other countries that have rose in power that did not threaten the international system. One thinks of J Japan and Germany after World War II. They most certainly became more powerful countries, but they didn't threaten their neighbors. More recently, Poland has been a fantastic success uh, since the collapse of communism there. Uh, and most certainly, you know, if one goes back and talks about territorial claims that the Poles might have, both, uh, uh, especially uh, uh, in the East, one could imagine a rising Poland wanting to do that, but of course they haven't done that. We know they haven't. So it's not sufficient to say all rising powers have to be threatening. Moreover, I can imagine a Russia that with a different kind of transition, a successful transition to democracy, a successful transition to capitalism, might be behaving differently with the same kind of power. Um, now that takes a lot of imagination, I know, uh, right? Because yeah, that didn't happen. But most certainly in the late 80s, uh, under Mikhail Gorbachev, and in the early 90s, when, when Yeltsin was trying to join, to build markets, build democracy, he failed, but he was trying, and integrate Russia into the West, there was a less confrontational moment in terms of our relations with them. So it wasn't just about power. But that takes a lot of imagination. So let me just tell you something much more short term that demands explanation. Just weeks before Putin invaded Ukraine, he was following a different foreign policy. He had a project that you've probably never heard of. It's called the Eurasian Economic Union. This is his response to the European Union, uh, where he wanted to bring all the countries of the former Soviet Union into an economic alliance. Now, some of us, including me when I was ambassador, 
saw this as threatening. This was not win-win to join this community. This was coercive. But it was using economic power to dominate the former Soviet Union. And key to the success was having Ukraine, all of Ukraine, not just Crimea, inside this Eurasian Economic Union. So something happened that caused him to pivot away from that. That was what he was using his rising power to do, not annex the territory of Ukraine, because by doing that, in my opinion, he is guaranteed forever that Ukraine will never be part of this economic union. Moreover, right before he went into Ukraine, he had a policy, he had a strategy to try to introduce the new Russia to the outside world. Was anybody at the Olympics by chance? Pitch, were you there? Pitch was there. Anybody else? So, Pitch, you can argue with me during questions if you had a different impression. But I was there. Uh, he spent $50 billion, allegedly, on this party. But it was a fantastic party. And the message of the opening and closing ceremonies was not the United States is an enemy, Western values are a threat to Russia. The, the message was, welcome to the new Russia. We're part of the international uh, community. They had all these kids there, young kids in these really colorful outfits, maybe you saw them on TV, spoke fluent English, and their job was to make you feel like this is the new Russia, this is not the Soviet communist uh, Russia that you remember. And most dramatically for me was uh, one of the episodes in the closing ceremonies. They had faces of authors coming across the field. Now, now think about that for a moment. Like, how many countries could actually pull that off? Like 50 authors that most people in the audience would recognize. Not too many could pull that off. Uh, a testimony to the, the richness of Russian uh, culture. But two, two portraits really jumped out at me. Vrodsky and Solzhenitsyn. That wouldn't happen 20 years ago. That wouldn't happen 40 years ago. They were trying to reclaim these great writers from the Soviet past to say, we are, this is the new Russia, this is not the old confrontational Russia. That was just two weeks before he invaded Crimea. So something else has to be added to the story to explain it. All right, second big theory, and this is about us. It's all our fault. It's all your fault. It's all America's fault. And this comes in two varieties. One variety is we pushed the Russians too hard. Uh, we told them they had to uh, make markets and become democratic. We expanded NATO. We bombed Serbia. We went into Iraq. We supported color revolutions in, in Ukraine and Georgia and Serbia. And therefore, this is just the, the reaction, that, the natural reaction that Putin had from all of our imperial policies. Um, you would imagine, of course, this is a very popular argument in Russia, but it's pretty popular around here, too. In fact, John Mersheimer from the University of Chicago just published a major piece in Foreign Affairs where he basically made this argument. We're to blame because of our expansionist pressure policies to Russia. My response to that is, uh, why something that happened 10 years ago is the explanation for Russian aggression today? And in particular, there's a period of time when Russia was behaving differently after all these nasty things we did. And it's the period of time that I was in the government for about three years. It was called the Reset, and it was a period of cooperation between the United States and Russia. 
We got the START Treaty done. We put in place sanctions against the Iranians. We developed an incredibly elaborate supply lines to our troops in Afghanistan, where we went from 5% uh, supplies through the northern route that President Bush started to about 55% when it peaked in 2011. Vital, by the way, to our national security uh, interests, not only in Afghanistan, but what we did in Pakistan. Uh, I don't think the president would have gone after bin Laden if 95% of our supplies to our troops in Afghanistan went through Pakistan. Um, fourth, we got them into the WTO during this period. And fifth, we managed a lot of difficult issues that you probably don't even remember. How many people remember the big revolution that happened uh, during this period in 2010? Hundreds of people died in a post-communist country. 300,000 people left, and it felt like we were on the verge of a civil war that was going to pit the United States against Russia. Anybody know what country I'm talking about? The fact you don't, somebody knows? Oh, you've heard me say this before. That doesn't count, George. Uh, uh, Kyrgyzstan is the correct answer. But you don't know about it because it was a dog that didn't bark in terms of the press, in terms of the, the things we were worrying about. By the way, just in terms of the way I would estimate our security interests, we had much bigger national security interests in Kyrgyzstan than uh, Ukraine for the simple fact that we had a very important air base there, the Manas Air Base, uh, that was vital to our war effort in Afghanistan. But instead of making this a confrontation between the West and the United States, we worked with the Russians to defuse what could have been a civil war in a very important country. By the way, during this period, 65% of Russians had a positive view of the United States, and 60% of Americans also thought that uh, when asked, is Russia friendly or an enemy of the United States, you all thought that Russia was friendly. So something has to be able to, ex you can't explain the confrontation today and the cooperation we had just three years ago by something that happened 10 or 15 years ago. There has to be more to the story. And that gets me to my third and last variable, and that's Putin. And in particular, Putin's return during a tumultuous time inside Russia. So let me tell you that story, and then I'll stop and take your questions. So Putin, of course, had been prime minister for eight years uh, during the time that uh, Medvedev was president. And in September, he decided to come back and run for president. Uh, that, by the way, was constitutionally allowed. Um, and three big things happened, some of which were, pre were predictable and some that weren't. First, having watched these two individuals up closely, uh, I was surprised uh, how different their worldviews were. Uh, if you think of Russia as being a unitary state and you think of Putin as being kind of in control over this time during the Medvedev era, uh, that was my assessment at the time, by the way, when I was working at the National Security Council. I think it was the consensus view in the U.S. government, including in our intelligence community, and it turned out to be wrong. It turned out that Putin had a pretty different view than President Medvedev did, and in three really important respects. One, Putin fundamentally sees the world in zero-sum terms. If it's two points for the United States, that's minus two for Russia. 
Uh, and I don't mean that just about the United States. He sees the whole world that way. Medvedev didn't. Medvedev saw the possibility that it could be good for the United States and good for Russia. Second, Putin trained in the KGB, worked in the KGB for his, uh, his formative uh, professional life, has always seen the United States as a competitor, not as a partner. And third, and, and, and perhaps most striking to me, uh, how, how blunt it was in terms of his thinking, he believes that the United States uses our overt and covert power to overthrow regimes when we don't like them. Now, again, there's some empirical evidence to support that claim over the last hundred years, but it was especially striking that he would assign to us, to the Ob President Obama, but to the United States, all kinds of power that, frankly, you know, in my view, we didn't have. So in o Putin's view, the United States started the Arab Spring. The United States uh, brought the kids out onto Tahrir Square in Egypt. The United States started the civil war in Syria, and the United States, in his view, brought out demonstrators in Russia. And that gets to the second piece that changed. As Putin, he decides to run in September of 2011, the election is in March 2012, in between is a parliamentary election in Russia. And it was stolen, just like all elections in Russia have been stolen for the last 20 years. Kind of the same methods, same level of falsification. But what was different in the fall of 2011 was two things. One, technology. So uh, things like smartphones, things like Vukontakte, uh, their equivalent of Facebook, things like Twitter. And that falsification was exposed because of this new technology. And second, there were a bunch of rich people, a bunch of middle class people primarily in Russia, uh, pr primarily in Moscow, but also in the other big cities, that said, hey, we don't want to take this anymore. We want to have something to say about who governs us. And one of, the that one of their favorite slogans back then was no taxation without real representation. Uh, they wanted to have a say in how these, these uh, people in their government spent their money. Because now they had money in a way that they didn't earlier. And that triggered massive demonstrations in Russia sometimes hundreds of thousands of people on the street. And that was the first time that had ever happened since the fall of the Soviet Union back in 1990, 1991. And Putin was pissed. He was really pissed. First of all, he said, these kids, I made them rich. How can they demonstrate against me? Now, the truth is, oil and gas prices made them rich. Putin's policies had very little to do with it, but that is not his perception. And then he got nervous. He never experienced popular demonstrations against his regime. Uh, and they genuinely were concerned about what might have happened uh, in terms of mobilization against the regime. And therefore, they had a series of things they did. But one thing they, they pivoted very hard to was to return to the kind of Cold War setup of the United States as the enemy and these demonstrators as our surrogates, as our puppets, as, as our, the fifth column, as they call them, uh, in Russia. And so the United States became the enemy overnight. Uh, President Obama became the greatest threat to, to, to Russian security. 
and I landed as ambassador right as this was happening. And believe me, being associated with the Hoover Institution did not help. Um, and I was immediately accused of being sent to Russia to foment revolution. Uh, that, that, and these people that were demonstrating there were, were people controlled and funded by me personally. And some of them were my friends, by the way. Uh, that, that actually, <laughs> because of my, uh, uh, you know, I was there when the Soviet Union fell and some of these people were involved. So it was, a, it was, a, it was as one of the Kremlin guys told me, he said, hey Mike, nothing personal. But the fact you came when you did, you helped us pick up 12 percentage points in the presidential election uh, because you were such a, a perfect poster child uh, for this, this propaganda campaign. So you put all those things together, and that, to me, suddenly we're in a much more confrontational period. By the way, we were slow to the take on this. We, the United States, we, the Obama administration, the government likes to just keep rolling along. Uh, doing the same old things. Uh, it was clear to us out in Moscow that we had pivoted in, in a pretty dramatic way. But part of the confusion is the last thing I want to tell you about Putin, which is that he's a fantastic compartmentalizer. He's very good at it. Uh, so in one breath, I, I sat there with him uh, when he told the president that I know that you are seeking the overthrow of our regime and we're going to stop you. And 10 minutes later, he would say, you know, the deal that Rosneft, their largest oil company, and ExxonMobil did was the most important event in U.S.-Russian relations in 15 years. And those competing impulses, those competing objectives, I think describes Putin from 2012 to February 2014. He doesn't like the fact that the Soviet Union collapsed. He once said that was the greatest tragedy of the 20th century in a very tragic century. But he also is too smart, and was too smart, I would say, to think that they could go back to creating the Soviet Union. Uh, he understood that he had to play by the rules of the game. He had to engage with the outside world to do some of the things that he wanted to do internally. And those competing impulses were the dual sides of Putin while I was ambassador. And then there was the final straw that, that for him, made uh, change everything, I think, forever for him. And that was the fall of the Ukrainian government in February of earlier this year. President Yanukovych was there. He was elected. He was Putin's guy. And um, on February 21st, there was a deal between him and the opposition. They thought they had closed this deal. And a day later, Yanukovych shows up in Rostov, Russia. He fled the country. Now, I was still in the U.S. government at the time, and I can tell you honestly that we supported that deal between Yanukovych and the opposition. We held our noses. We didn't like it. This guy, after all, uh, killed innocent people on the streets of Maidan, but we thought it was the best of a lot of bad alternatives. And to this day, I'm a little confused as to why Yanukovych fled the way he did. But Putin's not confused. This reconfirmed his theory about American power. When we don't like regimes, we send in the CIA. Well, sometimes we send in the 82nd Airborne, and other times we send in the CIA. And in this case, we were overthrowing a regime on Russia's borders. And that's when he decided, okay, to hell with these guys. I'm done dealing with these guys. I'm done dealing with their rules. I'm going to lash back. And that's when he decided to go into Crimea 
and later when he decided to support these so-called rebels uh, in eastern Ukraine to destabilize uh, Ukraine. There's one good news and one bad news if you accept my explanation. The good news is that we are not destined to have conflict with Russia forever. This is not about Russian history. This is not about Russian culture. This is not about some genetic code that Russians love autocracy and imperialism. My argument says it has more to do with individuals, not these big structural variables. Moreover, and maybe we can talk a little more about this in questions, I don't think Putin has a master plan. I don't think he's been sitting with a map of, of imperial Russia since he was 12 years old, thinking about how I'm going to recreate the, the Russian Empire. I don't think that has been his plan. This was a tactical, emotional response to what I just described, worrying about what happened in Kiev in February. And that gives some hope that, that, there's, that I don't think it's likely, for instance, and most certainly not inevitable, that he's going to annex more territory in Ukraine, although I, I could tell you the story under which that might happen. The bad news is that Putin's not going to change his mind about us, the West, uh, while he's in power. And he works out three hours a day. He's in great shape. Uh, he can run for president again in the year 2018, which would put him legitimately from their constitution and power till the year 2024. And as he proved the last time he left office, uh, he's perfectly capable of thinking about a creative way to stay in power beyond that. And that's my prediction. I don't see a circumstance, A, that he leaves power, and two, that he changes his mind about us. The real question in my mind, and I'll leave this with you, is whether, so he's got the staying power, right? He's locked in. He sees this as a, as a battle about ideas and interests uh, that he's, he's in for the long haul. The question I don't know is, are we up to the challenge of being engaged and locked in for the long haul with him? I'll end there and take your questions. Thank you. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on either iTunes U or SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.